This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. Do we have a rough idea of things to that we want to talk about? I thought we'd talk about the Super Bowl. Okay. Uh, what do you think about uh, the Patriots and doctoring the balls? I know some of these words. <laughs> Who's going to win the Super Bowl? Um, Green Bay. <laughs> See, I, I, I do know enough to know that that's going to really piss off all the Green Bay fans. Yes. Oh, okay, because they're not in the Super Bowl. Right, and yes. apparently the game was really ridiculously bad. Um, yes, it was. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I'm going to take the Patriots on the record. 20, okay. 24-20 over Seattle. So it's the Patriots in Seattle that are playing? Yeah. And the Patriots are your guys' team, right? Yeah. They they tend to cheat a little bit. People don't like that. I don't know why, but... They cheat? A little bit. Here and there. Don't they get disqualified for that? Mm. <laughs> that seems like a thing that should disqualify you. Yeah, they're just a little baby cheating. A little videotaping, okay. deflating the football. It's okay. <laughs> don't worry about it. Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. So uh, I hear your wife got into touring school. Congratulations. Yes. Yeah, Tess got admitted. She starts in two weeks, I think, February 9th. Very exciting. What's her background? Uh, She went to school for 3D animation, and that involves basically taking a single Python course because you have to do a little bit of scripting to be a 3D animator, surprisingly enough, and the language for that is Python in Maya. But yeah, she did really well on all the logic problems, and she, you know, she listens to me rant about Ruby a lot. So, so she listens to you rant and decided that's the career for me. I guess when people ask her about it, she talks about how she took a programming class in college and kind of always really liked it, but never really considered it until recently. But what actually happened was we were in Albuquerque on Thanksgiving. She went to a car wash with my mom. I have absolutely no clue what my mom had said to her because I'd been trying to convince her to get into programming since we met. But whatever that, whatever she said in that car wash, convinced <laughs> her to make a career change at the car wash. At the car wash. That's a song, right? Car wash, at yeah. The car wash, yeah, yeah. Tom will cut that in for us. Might be some licensing issues. Yeah, so that's cool. That's that Turing sounds like a really like intense. It's like six months, right? It is. Yeah. I mean, so I I, I do a lot of mentoring for all of the boot camps around here. And there's three main ones. There's Turing School, there's G School, and there is uh, Da Vinci Coders. And Da Vinci doesn't really fit in with the others because it's like a night school thing. And um, yeah, it's not necessarily one of the ones that you can come out of and immediately go into a junior position. It's not like a full immersion, quit your job kind of thing. Right, exactly. Um, But G School and Turing School both are. They both are six months long, and they both have the money-back guarantee of employment at the end of it. And so I mentor in both of them, and Turing's got a slightly different structure because what they do is they split everyone into posses. So there's cohorts and there's posses. So the cohorts are like the class, and every six weeks a new class starts. And then each student from each cohort will get put into a different posse, and then there will be um, two more junior industry mentors and one senior industry mentor for for every posse. So that way it ends up being like seven or eight students in the posse total. Maybe it's less than that. The idea being basically just gives you a range of abilities in a group with you. 
right? right? And so the students who are later in the in the program can help out the students who are earlier in the program. Because one of the biggest issues with the one-on-one mentoring is if you get sick or go to a conference and you miss a mentoring session, getting that routine started back up again turns out to be really difficult. I've done okay with it, but that's only because I'm aware of the fact that it's a problem if I'm not on top of it. If you go to a boot camp that has the one-on-one style mentoring and you talk to the students at the end of the at the beginning of the program, they'll be really happy with their mentors. And at the end of the program, half of them will not have a mentor just because like they, they went to a conference and then lines of communication never got reestablished. So th- the goal of the posse structure was to remedy that issue. And I think it's been pretty successful. It also must be helpful for people who are if you're just getting started out and you're only the only person you can talk to is somebody who's been doing this for 10 years, you might not remember as the person who's been doing this for 10 years or however long you've been doing it, you might not remember what it was like on day two, right? Yep. And so the person who's maybe on week three or four might have something that they can say that'll kind of uh, share with the person what unlocked something tricky for them, right? And yeah. I, I also use them as my guinea pigs for things that we should fix in Rails because they're confusing, but we're too jaded to notice anymore. Yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of those things. Yeah, I had a friend who just finished up uh, Metis, which was our three-month boot camp for Rails. I don't know if boot camp is the right term for these things, but that seems to be what people are calling them. Trade school. Yeah, I guess. Um, So he just finished that up, and I know he struggled with finding a job afterwards. Also had, like, he wasn't very confident in his skills. I don't... I didn't spend a ton of time with him afterwards, so I don't know, like, where his skills were actually and versus what he actually thought of it. And I think he ended up just going back to the job that he had before. So I saw him this weekend, and I was talking to him a little bit, and my advice there was basically, like, gee, that kind of sucks that you're back, you know, in the job that you quit to go do this thing after you spent all this money. He still seemed glad to have done it. Mm -hmm. And what we talked about was, like, you know, you at least know enough programming now to be dangerous. Right. And now in your job that's not a web developer, you can look for opportunities to be like, this is really tedious. I can automate this. And just use like your programming skills as a way to separate yourself from the other people doing your job or to eliminate the parts of your job you really don't like. So hopefully that ends up working out for you. I Something think that's like also that. why like, I don't want to call it programming or computer science. I think scripting really is the best term for it. But I think scripting should be a core class that we teach to kids in high school, at least for one year, if for no other reason than to make them aware that whatever they're doing with their job will probably have some form of automation that they're not taking advantage of. Like Microsoft Word and Adobe Photoshop are two programs that people use. I I would say the majority of jobs use one of those, at least desk jobs, use one of those two programs on a daily basis and have huge automation suites to, to help with tedious tasks that I don't think anyone takes advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and on OS X, we have AppleScript and Automator and all sorts of stuff that is... I've, I've like written a tiny bit of AppleScript that's totally incomprehensible to me, but maybe people who aren't programmers makes more sense to you, I guess. Tell program foo to <laughs> click on whatever. I, don't, I honestly don't even know it looks something syntax, like that. but yeah. Well, anyway, good luck to Tess. Hopefully yeah. she'll enjoy it. Yeah, I think so. She's been working through the Pickaxe and Agile Web Development with Rails 4 and seems to be enjoying both of those books. So, And that's before she's even... Like when is when she supposed to start? On the ninth. Oh, okay. So she's getting ahead. She's getting a good jump start on it anyway. Yeah. Well, we we figured it would be good to like go through at least one of the books to make sure that she really did have an because uh, Turing's not cheap. So <laughs> you know, 
it would suck to go through it and not like it. Yeah. Uh, we don't usually record on Friday, so like Fridays is our, are our like investment days where we get to do, I guess, what's interesting to us, right? Yep. So what have you been working on today? Uh, Rails, trying to get 4.2.1 out the door. What else is new? Rails, Rails, Rails. What's What are the major issues you're trying to get to in 4.2.1? So there were there were kind of two main categories, I guess. One was a performance regression. I don't even know if you'd necessarily call it a regression, but just in 4.2.0. Like I consider reads to be the bottlenecks in most apps. And if reading wasn't going to be your bottleneck, if you were a write-heavy app, you'd probably be using Mongo instead of a relational database, assuming that you're at a scale where like we're going to actually cause you problems. So reading is pretty much universally faster in 4.2.0 than it was in 4.1. Not necessarily in all cases, but it's if it is slower, it's, it's less than 5% slower. But like model.find, for example, is almost three times as fast, I think. But writing did have a regression in 4.2.0. It's about half the speed, um, just assigning the attributes to the model. And then going to the database, I think, is also going to be slightly slower as well. So I just didn't have time to get to it before 4.2 shipped. And it was less of a concern because writing is already going to be slow. It's a relational database. Like Writing is significantly slower than reading already. So, so tackling those, which all of them ironically came from dirty tracking more than anything else. And then... There's just been a lot of edge cases because uh, the whole type, the whole typecasting code got completely redone in 4.2 and in some cases had changes in behavior that shouldn't be publicly visible in a way that affects anyone but just made everything behave more consistently. Um, and like for every type now there are from the database, here are the defined inputs, here's what's going to come out, here's what junk data means, and then here's what we accept from users. And... There's just so, for example, there was an edge case in SQLite 3, which I don't necessarily understand the full reason behind this, but basically, if you give us a ASCII 8-bit string, we need to convert it to UTF-8 to send it to the database. Um, and the reason for that is if you send an ASCII 8-bit string to the database on SQLite 3, it stores it as a blob instead of as a string. Uh, I don't know why it does that. I don't know if other databases do the same thing and we're just not handling it, and I just don't care enough about SQLite 3 to really dig into it. All I know is we were doing that before, we have to keep doing that. So the SQLite 3 adapter provides its own string type, which inherits from the abstract string type, and then overrides typecast for database to check if it's a string and check if it is ASCII 8-bit encoding, and if it is, changes it to UTF-8. And that turned out to interact with dirty uh, checking, or specifically our detection of in-place mutations poorly, because one of the things we have to do, the way we, the way we detect if you've mutated something is we keep the database representation that we get when it comes out of the database. And then before we go back to the database, when we serialize it again, we compare those two strings um, with the assumption that the thing you get out of the type will be a different object than the thing the database gave it, which that really only matters for strings. And so when you assign an attribute, we have to serialize it for the database at the time you assign it. So that way we have a thing that you can't mutate. But now that means that this thing that would have only errored before, if you, if, this is assuming an ASCII 8-bit string that cannot be converted to UTF-8. Um, that will raise an encoding error if you try to convert it. Before, it would raise an error when you tried to save it. Now it raises an error when you assign it just because we're, we're, we're serializing it for the database to hold on to it. And it turns out Redmine had a test for exactly this case where they, for a couple of things, I guess, have a string that is not UTF-8 and they expect to sometimes get invalid encodings. And so then they have a before create 
or a before update, some sort of callback that goes to these columns that can potentially get invalid data and like manually sanitize it. So their workaround was they overrided the setter instead of doing it in a, which I would, I would argue is where it should be done. It's a more uh, object-oriented way to do it, right? Exactly. But Rails has us in this mindset that like setters are a private thing and you're not allowed to write your own getters or setters on active record models and you should use callbacks for everything, which I disagree with, but <laughs> yeah. like, but that's how people want to use it. And anyway, I found it actually, I couldn't figure out a good place to put the test for this. Because the test was basically, if typecast for database raises an exception, it shouldn't raise on attribute assignment. Or more specifically, the way I decided to write the test was, the attribute should be reassignable. So at no point during assigning the attribute and then uh, assigning it a second time after the first one had some invalid stuff, being able, you should be able to assign it the second time. Right. So I created a, a fake type object which just raises whenever you call typecast for database. Right. Created a model called attribute to give it this custom type and then assigned it once, assigned it twice, asserted equality of the second value, and that's all good. But it, I mean, it was technically a bug and dirty. But it doesn't have anything to do with, it doesn't have anything to do with dirty checking in the test. Right, exactly. Like it's, it's about attribute assignment. And, it, and, I, and I intentionally wrote the test to kind of be a little bit more broad than that because I didn't actually care about this one specific implementation detail of dirty that could very easily change later. And so right. I found myself not sure where to put that. Yeah, we've had this conversation before. We're obsessed on where to put things. <laughs> yeah, well, because it's like, actually, a better example is... is um, Did you consider app services? Just <laughs> check. <laughs> like, a better example is, uh, is, is the integer type, where it now checks if a value is, if, if the value is in, like, the range that it can represent. So, like, a 32-bit integer can only be 2.1 million roughly, um, to negative 2 point, I guess close to 2.2 million, billion, that number. <laughs> a big number, plus or minus. Yes. Yeah. Um, There's an end to it. Yes, exactly. And the reasons why we did this are long and annoying, but basically like the database was going to give you an exception some of the time for some adapters in some cases, but not others. So we figured it was just better for us to consistently give you an exception that you can handle rather than sometimes having the database raise an exception that you can't reliably handle. Right. Um, and then also let us enforce our contract in find and find by of returning nil or raising a record not found, right. which giving a non-valid integer value to find should basically be the same as doing where one equals zero. Yep. That makes sense. Anyway, so I, I wrote this and I, I wrote the range check and typecast for user. Turns out there were people who had numericality validations asserting that the values given to that column were a valid integer, 32-bit integer. And now it, it raises an exception when you assign it and it doesn't even get to the validations. So the fix there was to move, since really what we're, we were trying to do was make sure that the database doesn't give you an error, that we give you an error. I moved the, the range check to typecast for database. Right. So now we try and run fine with a giant number that's outside of the bounds of a 32-bit integer. It'll be typecasted for the database. It'll overflow, and you'll... you'll and we raise a range error. error, and then in find, we catch range error and raise record not found. Active record not found, right. Yeah. And so, the, again, I wrote this test the same way as the other one. Just because I noticed in Elliot's fix to shutter matchers to work around this, he uh, noted that like if you assign an out-of-range value, because of where the error was specifically happening... Like, you would never be able to reassign it, even if you rescued the range error. Um, hmm. So I, I wrote the test the same way. Like, a 
integer column can have an out-of-range value assigned and then have it be reassigned with a valid value. And then, like, if I wanted to be thorough, I could also write a test that says, like, and it will get to numericality validations and those will work. But I figure if, if you can assign it and reassign it, probably even assert you can read it, like, that there's no way anything else will break. So I could have written that test on the unit tests for the integer type object, but that would, like, that test of this happens in this typecast method instead of this typecast method feels really meaningless in isolation. Like, it only makes sense in the context of all of the steps we go through in attribute assignment. Right. So you need, you need like a feature level test that's only for the attributes of Active Record. Yeah, well, and we have it, but it's just it's already like a fifteen hundred line test. Well, now it's a fifteen hundred and thirty line test. I guess, yeah. <laughs> it just feels weird to put a, a, a test in like that general. This is these are the tests for attribute assignment when it's something specific to how the integer type interacts with potentially dirty checking and numericality. But what you're expo- what, what it sounds like you're explaining is that like you don't want to link the test to dirty checking. You want to say you want to specify the overall behavior of the system. Right? Yeah. So yeah. it's well this one's more specific to integers than dirty. Like right. that's where it would naturally fit if my integer type test at any other point did something other than call a method directly on an integer type object. That's where I would feel comfortable putting this. But then it's just like now I've got an active record class in this test file that never did that before because it only tested the specific behavior of that object in isolation. Right. So where did you put it? I don't know. Oh, you're not done yet. <laughs> I, 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 well, I've got the test written. I, I put it in integer test, and I was trying to decide where to put it, and then we started recording. Oh, well. Sorry. So I haven't committed it yet. <laughs> uh, I saw your pull request this morning that you submitted about that. Uh, we had a discussion yesterday in our company chat about... I think back in our performance episode, one of the things we said you could do in performance critical areas is to select only the data you need from the database. And um, we've had a discussion going on in our code room for the last couple of days, or spanning a couple of days. We haven't been talking about it consistently for two days. Um, Is like, how do you, what's the best way to figure out exactly like, okay, I've got a bottleneck on this page. I'm selecting way too much data. How do I have any hope of being able to figure out what I'm supposed to select? Like, what do I have to select? And so there was a pull request that you opened, I don't know, yesterday or this morning that adds a method that you could call in development. What was it called? Access? Uh, Accessed fields. Accessed fields. So on the model, you could call access fields and it would list at the end of the controller action, you could call that and it would output everything that you would access. Right. And then you just take the output from that and stick it in select. Right. Which would be useful. I think for the most part, the only thing I could come up with when I looked at it quickly was like, if you have conditionals in your views... Mm-hmm. that maybe you're not exercising, maybe you're rendering a partial only under some circumstances that might render some additional information on that model. So one call to that is not necessarily sufficient for, for what you should select, right? That's that's fair. Like, there's definitely ways you can trick it. Luckily, one, one of the things that'll happen, though, is if you, ever do, if you select too little, if you try and access a field that you didn't select, we will raise an exception. So like, there's so it definitely... Won't just, it won't just be nil. You'll get an exception if you have a. Yeah. So if somewhere in your application you had a test that exercised the code that was in this conditional, you would end up finding the exception. Which so hopefully you have at least trivial coverage of that branch. Yeah, and it was it was mostly just like I don't want to go through all of these views and all of these partials and every method the model has and try and figure it out, and also to remove the fear of like changing anything because then you have to go figure out if you need to change your selects like the idea is now you can just if you need to change a view you just delete the select right and then just read and redo the process just right. stick the the puts 
uh, puts access fields at the end of the method. So it sounds like it gives you a, it gives you at least a fighting chance at doing this. Select yeah. only the fields you need, and it's not something you. Hopefully, it's not something people get in the habit of doing consistently. Right. But um, where you need it, it it could be useful. So hopefully, yeah. that'll make it in there. Hopefully, well, it it, it, it it's in there. Okay. It'll be in five point um, If it doesn't, you can join me in monkey patching. Hell, <laughs> you can write a gem for it. <laughs> One, th one thing I'm, I'm, I am going to try and do as a gem, there's this thing called Peak, which I haven't actually looked at in detail, but just people in Campfire pointed me at this as a way that might be able to accomplish this. And it like lets you look at, hook into things that are done in a Rails app, I guess. So what I kind of want to do is write a gem that will, at the end of every controller action, um, that involves like more than one record, I guess. If you're using less than maybe a third of the data that came out of the database automatically put something in your terminal. Say the same way that we automatically explain queries that take over a certain threshold. Like it'd be like that, but it's just if there's a, a place where you are very obviously able to right. improve your performance by throwing away two thirds of the data. That reminds me, I, I also thought of this when I saw your pull request was you could build this into something like Bullet, which right. sounds similar. Bullet is like for finding unused eager loads or places where you should be eager loading and you're not. And you could use the, what, what was the method called again? That you uh, accessed fields. Yeah, you could use accessed fields and say like, how many accessed fields were there? How many are there on this object? Like, how how big are these objects? You know, we could do some. Yeah, and then the hard part's just figuring out after the controller action is done is done, and that, and that's the hard part because you can't just like like I'm pretty sure the way Bullet does it is just if it's in a loop and it notices you load the same association multiple times then it does its thing, mm -hmm. which wouldn't work here because the whole controller action has to finish. So we have to have some way to automatically keep track of every record in every controller action. Right. And we'll put links to the show notes. It'll be at bikeshed.fm slash seven uh, for the gems and stuff that we talked about in that pull request if you want to take a look at it. Earlier you'd mentioned active record not found and that just like Chris Toomey and I are working on this project right now. And um, it's a, they, they call it a service-oriented architecture. And I think I've talked about this a little bit on the show, but like I've taken to call it an application-oriented architecture because that's really what it is. It's like one application talking to another application. Mm -hmm. There's nothing really service about it, but there are place. There's this app that exists as basically it's a Rails app, but it's just a front end. It doesn't have any. It doesn't have a database. Okay. And it connects to another Rails app with Faraday calls. So in Faraday, you can have middleware, just like Rack middleware, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things they one of the things that was done was. If you make a call to backend, which is what they call the backend, <laughs> if you make a call, should we, should we should we also specify what Faraday is for people who might not be familiar with it? Sure, go ahead. Uh, Faraday is basically a gem that gives you an active record like interface for third-party APIs that you would access over HTTP. So it gives you methods like find and assumes that it's at a RESTful endpoint and you can access them that way. Is that what it does? I thought it was a wrapper around that gem. I think that's to me that's more her is what I've heard. It's a terrible okay. gem name, but her. So Faraday to me is just a wrapper around NetHTTP, and now we're gonna have to look this up because we can't we can't be wrong about this. You're the one working with it; you'd know better than I would. It's possible that it is supposed to do what you're saying, and we're just not using it that way. Um, no, you're right; I'm wrong. It's, okay, it's just a wrapper around NetHTTP. Okay, so it's a wrapper around NetHTTP. It lets you have, and it also lets you insert middleware that are like really similar to rack middleware to the point where if you have a rack middleware and you want to use it in Faraday, it's like trivial to convert the two. But one of the middlewares they inserted was we, we talked about when you call find in an active record or you call find by bang, 
um, you're going to get an exception if the if the record can't be found. You're going to get active record not found. So you can rely on that in your controller actions. Like if you're looking at a post, uh, you go to like post slash one. That's going to mm-hmm. it's going to call post dot find one right canonically. And if that post ID is not found, you're going to get active record not found, and that's going to get by default rescue from with the 404 page. Right. So that's great. So they wanted similar behavior when you are calling a remote backend. Mm-hmm. So what we did was insert a Faraday middleware that looks at the response code and says, is this a 404? Mm-hmm. Turn it into a active record not found. Okay. Unfortunately, the problem we ended up having with that, well, first of all, it's a little confusing because it's not an right. active record not found. Um, but the problem we ended up having that, it works like you would expect when you are making Faraday calls that you expect to behave like find. But there are times when you're making Faraday calls that you don't expect to behave like find and you expect to behave more like find by without the bang, right? Or right. where. So we found that things that would like, you know, maybe your post.find one passes just fine and then you get into the views and you're in the views and maybe the views are going to get you a list of, I don't know, widgets or whatever. And for whatever reason, it's looking for widgets associated to something. There are none in the backend 404s. Maybe it's not the greatest thing that the backend 404s. So the views are making HTTP requests? Oh, of course. Yeah. Okay. Just just making sure we're clear on that. On that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's to be clear, that's, you know, we shouldn't be doing that, but we'll get there. Um, so the view makes an HTTP or does something that causes an HTTP request more accurately. Like okay, we're not, we're not enough. intentionally saying make this HTTP request. It's something that the idea that I like to say is like, if we're going to make this work, you should be able to be somewhat ignorant of the fact that the backend isn't local when you are just writing in a view, right? You should, these sure. things should behave like you would expect them to behave. So to me, it's reasonable to do something with it, with the record. And you might not know that it's going to go and make a, a, a remote call. Sure, and it's on whoever's writing the controller to recognize, like, oh, this is going to make a remote call. How, you know, they're likely to want this data. Should I fetch it now? That kind of thing. Right. But anyway, in this case, it didn't. So now you've got a controller action that succeeds, rend- or at least gets to the point of rendering the view, mm-hmm. and then something in the view causes a 404, and then that gets rescue from, and now you're staring at a 404 page, <laughs> and you're looking at the URL bar, and you're like, this says post one. I know post one exists. And so we chased our tail on this for, I don't know, a really long time before we figured out, because it's also a series of partials that you have to chase through to figure out, like, what's going on? Like, where where is this error coming from? So we don't change the URL if a record not found gets raised from inside of a view? I don't think so. Like, if you go, or maybe from, from a view, I don't... Well, because that's what you're saying happens, right? Inside yes. of the view. Because I, right. I would expect we would still just redirect to 404.html. Or did we even do that? In I don't the first think it re- does it redirect. I think it just renders the 404, right? Oh, maybe. Yeah. Maybe, okay. Yeah. Right. I think it just renders the 404 page. You, like you don't get redirected when you get a 404. Usually, you're, you're still looking at the URL you asked. You just have a 404 page. Okay. Right. So you can tell what URL 404. Right. Okay. So we're still looking at post slash one, and we're staring at a 404, and we know one exists. So this was something. Now we're trying to go back and forth on like what is the right behavior because you want that you want that to blow up in the case where you wanted something like find, but you don't want it to blow up in the case. I mean, arguably it shouldn't ever blow up, but we have cases in the views where we want this to be more, I don't know, lax, I guess is what I'm trying to right. say. Well, I mean, one thing that might help with debugging that just comes to mind, have you thought about having your own exception class and then just have, uh, you, to start out, you can add a custom rescue from in uh, 
application controller that basically does the same thing, but then you can easily turn it off. Right. I mean, to the point, like I had been on this project for a little while, so I was able to say to Chris, like, oh, hey, I think there's some sort of Faraday middleware hiding somewhere in this application that does this, right? Right. So that's kind of, I think, how people figure it out is through word of mouth. It's like, oh, you're getting weird 404s. Uh, check somewhere in lib or something. There's some middleware somewhere that does something. So we, well, this and, is the problem with rescue from in general, right? right? Yeah. So we ended up disabling it. I think what we're going to do is disable that feature altogether in development mode. Um, and that should help a lot basically. But, yeah. um, you know, it's what, it's something that sounded like a nice idea to me, like being able to, it say it basically saved us from having to write logic and every controller action that was making one of these remote calls that we wanted to behave like find from having to do begin or not even begin, I guess, because it doesn't raise an exception when you get a 404 back with Faraday from having right. to basically make the call, check the status. If the status is 404, raise active record not found or raise something that we could make behave like active record not found. The easiest thing to do is to raise active record not found because then you can rely on the uh, default rescue from to give right. you your 404 page, right? So... I don't know. That's what that's what we ended up doing is just disabling the the thing in dev mode. But it's just another nail in the coffin of <laughs> to me of this application oriented architecture where this could just as easily this database could just as easily live inside this Rails app and you could just call find and get the exact right. behavior you wanted. And there's so there's just so little gain for it. But I don't know what to I don't I have you have you worked on service oriented architectures that you found enjoyable? Well, yeah, but that's, those are the ones where they're not really communicating with each other pretty much. Like, I mean, if you think about Amazon, for example, right, their service-oriented architecture is primarily a bunch of completely isolated services that um, the main only get pulled together. Like, they each are responsible for rendering small subsections of the page and then get pulled together sometimes even via JavaScript rather than, like, this thing is responsible for this, but now rather than just calling some code, we're going to send it an HTTP request. Right. Yeah, I mean, but that's not the dream, right? <laughs> the dream oh. we're pitched on is like you have this giant application and you carve it up into these little services, which sounds like a great idea. I've been on three of these projects so far and none of them have been ideal. Like they've all had what I would call significant problems to the point where I was, I in every case, I was like, I wish this was just one Rails app that we could. And it, and it makes like, when it's just one Rails app, if the if that one Rails app is in not the greatest shape, it's so much easier to reason about and make refactorings when you control the entire scope of the request and response in one right. location. And I think like this whole microservice trend and service like this, the SOA trend in general is partially just because we're really bad at drawing boundaries between our different parts of our system and then adhering to them. So if you make HTTP the boundary, <laughs> exactly, there's a pretty hard boundary there, right? Right. And, that, you know, and I've, I think I've, I've mentioned this before on the show, like I think there is the missing concept of packages in Ruby and package visibility right? that we have in, in Java and other some other OO languages, which I think if we had that might help. Yeah. I mean, I have that problem in clearance as well, just internally. Like I know there are these methods that are sitting here and they're public because I need to be able to call them from some other object that is, of, but I consider it to be private. Right. And, but I want to change it. And now I have to be like, well... I'm in a tough spot because, like, we've talked about Rails. Something is considered to be private if it's not documented, right? Right. None of clearance is documented. So I can't say it's private if it's not documented. The documentation is in the readme, and that's it. 
and I don't I don't feel like I can say like if it's not in the readme it's private and you shouldn't have been using it. So I'm also adding documentation as I go. So I can... yeah, I was gonna say that's that's probably the best way to start is by <laughs> documenting all the things you want to make public. Right, documenting all the things I want to make public and then carefully considering like. I made a change the other day to something that I am probably 99.9% sure is only used internally. Like, and someone opens an issue. No, nobody opened the issue. I, ju I just made the, I just released the change today, so we'll wait and okay. see. But Prem did point out, he's like, well, what if I was already, like I deprecated this method and replaced it with another method that was just much better named. Same functionality. Mm -hmm. So you get a deprecation message and it uh, calls through to the new method, basically. Okay. Um, but it's a method that ends up being called in the before filter. So you could conceivably have overridden that method expecting the before filter to call this overridden behavior. Okay. And there's nothing saying that you can't do that. There's no documentation that tells you this method is private, but I'm like 99.9% .9 sure. I just cannot think of a conceivable reason why anybody would override this method. Right. <laughs> so I'm waiting in about a week. I'll probably find out why somebody overrode, overrode this method. And it's probably a totally logical explanation that I can't and so explain. That, and, and then they won't get the deprecation warning and right. the code they internally is calling the new method. Right. Yep. So that before that before filter doesn't actually even run anymore, a different before filter runs and gives you the default behavior that you had overridden before. In this case, it's not bad. Like the before filter I'm talking about, um, basically, if you try to sign in and you're already signed in or something like that, it redirects you somewhere. I forget. Okay. But so you know, it won't break your site. It just might redirect you somewhere where you you know previously you were redirecting people to this one place and now we're redirecting you to the root of the website or something like that. Right. Not a well, big deal. You but always looking to method added. <laughs> I could do that or I could like one of the things I wanted to do is like I, I renamed the before filter the the main before filter of clearance is authorize or was authorized which basically right. says like the user must be logged in to see this website that's the right. amount of authorization where clearance does for you we changed this for many reasons to require login and I didn't like the deprecation path for that isn't great and I screwed it up in 1.7 I basically changed all internal references I changed just like we said like I had authorize basically call print a deprecation and then call require login right. require login works i made i made changes to every in in my uh, deprecation method i said basically search your application for this before filter change it to require login make sure you make sure you also get where you're skipping the before filter change it right. to require login and then realistically you could probably just search for the word authorized because i right. can't imagine it appears that much right and then i switched all of our internal uses of authorized to require login so there are places on like the sign-in page that used to say skip before filter authorize because obviously you don't want to be authorized on the sign-in page. Right. So I changed those to skip before filter require login. A couple days later, I get a, I get a bug report that people are stuck in infinite redirect loops because the authorized call on the protected page printed a deprecation warning that nobody was paying attention to because it's production. Nobody's looking at this log. Right. And then it redirected to the sign-in page, and the sign-in page is set to skip before filter require login. Well, require login is not the before filter anymore. It's not the before filter now because they're still calling the old authorize. Right. So the solution was pretty easy. I just also skipped the before filter authorize, right? So I skipped both before filters. Okay. And there's no, yeah, that's, that makes sense. There's no error if you, if you skip a before filter that wasn't enabled. Right. It's not a problem. No, and that is a tricky one. Yeah, what I really wanted to do was be able to hook into before filter and skip before filter and say like to have like a before filter added or before filter skipped or something and I could say and then I'd be able to deprecate if you before if you if I got before filter added for authorize, I'd be able to say, "Hey, this is deprecated." And if I got Why don't you just override them and call super? Uh, override. Yeah, I thought about <laughs> I thought that would be really bad. You think I could, you think I should override uh, before before filter or skip before filter in a gem? 
I don't think that would go over well. That's I would imagine that's something that you know could de- definitely break between Rails versions. But if you're doing that to check to see if they're doing something that you've deprecated. Yeah, I just didn't. I didn't feel comfortable with it. I just went with the skipping both things, and I felt bad about mm. the few days where the thing was released that you know people could potentially get in redirect loops. It solved. It was solved by just just by switching to require login. Right. And you know, hopefully your test test would have found that if you ran the tests before you upgraded the gem. But whoops. So playing devil's advocate here, how is this better than before filter before action? Uh, it's slightly better than before filter before action, and <laughs> we had an argument. We had a dis- uh, heated discussion about this a little while ago too, mm-hmm. off the air. Uh, but before, so before filter before action, the problem with that is the change is cosmetic, right? Sure, it's only cosmetic. There's no functionality change. Was there a functionality change here though, or was it just renaming it to a, a, a clearer method? There's a slight functionality change in that. We receive a non-trivial number of bug reports about collisions with other things that have an authorized method. So okay. other things like Pundit, that's the that's the one that gets reported the most, has an authorized before filter, right? Okay. And what we're doing isn't, I mean, we're just require like what we're actually doing is requiring you to be logged in, right? Sure. So we could just name it require login, right? And that's, that's what yeah. it's doing. Yeah, it's a much better name. It's I a agree. better name and it's not like splitting hairs like i feel like you know before filter before action is uh splitting hairs and actually as far as how i actually use before filters or before actions i guess i should get in the habit of calling them, I use them for filtering right is use them for filtering so <laughs> to me it's a much better name for filtering but um yeah. so there was there were actually bug reports that you know led me to want to change this and then when i saw require login being used in monbond i was like oh that's a much that's a great name that's perfect right so that's why we made that change okay but yeah so the before filter before action thing was so I guess you don't get a deprecation message when you use before filter. You do. No. Four point one, four point two? Nope. No before no deprecation message. If you look at the documentation, it just says these aren't it says these aren't deprecated, but you shouldn't use them and they may be removed. The documentation says that. Or no, they're not huh. do, sorry, they're not documented. The change the change log for Rails four two says this. Something to that effect, which we can link to in the show notes, bikechat.fm okay. slash seven. <laughs> So there's no deprecation, which is inter- an interesting choice. Like maybe they'll be deprecated in five. I don't. It's really I confusing. Guess, yeah, I mean we would have to. Well, we could technically remove them in five. I guess. I mean, because they're not. But like, there was no. Because it's a major version bump. Right. But you like to. I mean, even with a major version bump, if you can. Unless there's a really good reason. And they're and before filter before action, not a very good reason. <laughs> no. Well, and I hate that change to begin with. I think it is unnecessarily painful change that basically every user is going to have to make when we eventually remove before filter yep i mean it's a simple change that's the other thing like it's simple but it's unnecessary like right it may you know if you've got a large enough rails app that might be a couple hundred files i probably wouldn't even mind it if i liked the change right (laughs) like if i was like oh this is a better name whatever i'll do it once i'm done but if like now i'm like oh i gotta call these things before actions now Careful, it's got a before action. I don't know. It's just whatever. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the name change, I guess, came from like, I don't know if the scaffold generator still does this, but for a while we had changed the scaffold generator to use a before action to call find and then also to set post.all to the instance variable posts. I am confident that that was the reason they were changed to before action. I remember reading something from DHH, I believe himself, saying like, we're not just using these for filtering, we're using these for assigning instance variables. And I was like, please, please don't, don't, don't do that. Yeah, no, and, I, and I, I agree. I think that comes from attempting to overdry 
Like, yep. I, I think it might have been Avdi on Ruby Rogues. Might not have been. It was somebody. They were talking to somebody about something, and, and part of what they were talking about was dry and taking it too far and about structural duplication, whereas dry is meant to be about, like, duplicating knowledge of, of concepts or information. And when you see people trying to dry out things like CRUD in, the, in their Rails controllers, really what they're doing is there is there it's just incidental duplication like it happens to look the same right now it has the same structure but it's completely different concepts and they're likely to change independently right they'll change for different reasons is the key yes. right yes so they'll, that's that's a good way to put it if they'll change for different reasons then you probably don't need to dry it up yeah. or if you do dry it up you may find yourself undrying it <laughs> later yeah so that like the the instance variable is another thing that I see a, a lot of places and like when I'm editing a controller action I will often go through and like if you have a post instance variable set in a before filter I may actually just go in the controller action if it's too complicated for me to actually unwind all that in the actual show controller action or something I may say at post equals and then call that same thing that sets the memoized like instance variable just so like there's a record here and people will be like why are you doing this it's already set to that like, right. Well, because I wanted a record in this action that tells me, like, here are the instance variables I am going to pass down to this view because of the whole instance variables copying over to views thing, which is another you know, common confusing thing, I feel like, about Rails. But uh, Yeah, I don't use that personally. You don't? Do you, you do helper method or? Mm -hmm. Interesting. I, I do memoized help, helper methods for everything. And then in, if I need an action to change the value of it, I set the instance variable that the helper method uses. So you do still have that problem of, like, I, th at that point, I can't just look at the action to see what's provided to the view. I have to look at what the view is calling. Right. I mean, you could definitely... I mean, I could, you could do the same thing and then just set the instance variable in every uh, action if you wanted to, which right. then, I don't know, then I feel like the code would feel strangely strange. Right. <laughs> I mean, what I end up doing, like I said, when I end up just making that redundant assignment in the controller action, it's mm -hmm. my first step towards unwinding those before actions and making them more filter-like. And there are times when you do need, like a before filter needs access to the resource in order to check authorization information on it or something like that. And in those cases, a memoized helper is fine, but I will still do the assignment in the, um, even though the before filter has already taken care of the assignment for me, I'll still do it right in the controller action. That's fair. Anyway. I mean, yeah, the only, the only downside of that might be redundant uh, database queries. It's memoized though. So it shouldn't right, be a problem. But if you're reassigning it in the controller action. I'm reassigning the instance variable, right? So I'm saying at post equals get post, right? And get post is defined as at post or gotcha. equals. Gotcha, yes. <clears throat> so, um, and then there might be a before filter that says, um, you know, post is owned by user. And that says get post dot owned by user or something like that. And, you know, asserts that. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I think, I don't know. I don't know what I think. <laughs> I stopped thinking a long time ago. Now you're just doing uh, it by feel. <laughs> oh, back on the on the confusingly named things. I've got a uh, an interesting case that like I'm I'm de I'm probably not gonna gonna fix it, but um, so we have this thing called before typecast in Rails, right? Yep. So if you do whatever attribute underscore before typecast, you get the thing before we do all of our typecasting, and, and that would be that would be the thing that comes back from the database, right? So that's actually not what it was intended for. Okay. It was intend when it was originally written. So the the origin of it was it was added for the numericality validator, because an integer column will treat 
a non-numeric string. We just call 2i on it. Mm-hmm. So a non-numeric string gets turned into zero. So right. numeric, the numericality validator needs to see what came directly from the form so that it can figure out if it, if it was actually zero or if it was a non-numeric string. Mm-hmm. And so it was called before typecast. Now, in, if you fast forward from there to 4.2, where you just see the, the effects of that ripple out through the code base, and now active record internally relies on before typecast actually being the value before any typecasting occurred. And that includes when, when it came from the database. Right. So, so originally it was from coming from views, and then it started to get used when also coming from the database, so both directions, basically. Exactly. And what you would see in 4.1 was there was this method called typecast for write, and that would basically take, there was, there, it was basically only overridden by serialized. And it was because with serialized, you're actually commonly going to assign the array, not like the format. You wouldn't, you wouldn't take YAML form input, right? Because serialized, for those who, who aren't familiar with it, is a class macro on active record that basically lets you YAML dump an object to a database column. Um, and it's how you would get, for example, an array on an active record object in MySQL. And so it's pretty common to like assign an array. So serialize would override this to YAML dump when you assigned it. And so the before typecast was actually after typecast for write was called. But now, now, now we rely on it not working that way. So, so what, what it's become clear is that before typecast actually means, or at least as it's used in the form builder and likely how everybody else externally is relying on it, it doesn't mean before typecast. It means as provided by a user. Right. So what I want to do is I want to deprecate before typecast, rename the, the actual before typecast something internal, undocumented, that is not public API, deprecate before typecast, revert before typecast to the old behavior with the deprecation warning, and then in 5.0, remove it, or in 5.1, I guess, remove it, and have the as provided by user be, if it came from the user, then have it be the raw user input, otherwise return nil. If it came from the user, it's raw. If it didn't come from the user, it's nil? In the method as provided by user. Okay. Oh, right. Yeah, I mean, that from, from I'm thinking from the, uh, what was the original method name again? Before typecast. Before typecast, right. I wouldn't think right. that would And be then before that. typecast will still exist internally with a different name that I is not public. I feel like I've interacted with before typecast before, and this is going to be a pain. I feel like I've done this before, maybe with form builders. Yeah, you Probably. might have called it once somewhere, and you would have to, and, and the change would likely not affect you. Okay. Like the the change in behavior would likely not affect you. The change in name would. Right. Right. And so that's why and that's why I'm hesitant to do it. But um, because realistically, like while there is a change in behavior there, the change in behavior is basically just to justify the change in name. The change in name is just because it's a poorly named method. And I have no real reason. The original bug that that prompted this was uh, if you have a serialized column with a form input and you're not specifying a class, so like you can serialize a string. I don't know why people are YAML dumping strings into strings, <laughs> um, but people are doing it. And, and so basically before, if you had a form input and it was for a serialized type and you submitted it, right, you'd get back whatever you had in the form input, but now you get back the YAML dumped string because the form input uses before typecast. Right. So you're, gonna, you're, you're on the fence about making this change, basically. Yeah, I'm on, so, and so to fix that bug, I just added a predicate method that was, was this provided by the user? Right. And then the form builder now, if it was provided by the user, uses before typecast. And if it wasn't provided by the user, uses the after typecast. But stuff, because it'll be painful for people for no apparent reason other than like it's a bad name. Yep. That's the foremost reason, right? But you had other reasons. So, 
Yeah, but I've handled the other reasons. <laughs> True. Like this is this is pushing pain onto onto users because of an of, of a thing that will make the implementation cleaner and more apparent. But I don't know if it's worth it. Good luck with that one. <laughs> no thoughts. No I advice. No, I mean I I don't. I mean if you've already fixed it, I would say, like I said, I feel like I've interacted with that method when writing a form builder before, yeah. and it's not something people should do. I don't recommend writing a form builder. Um, <laughs> Or a validator. Right. Yeah, I don't recommend writing any of those things. Like we said, I recommend writing classes that don't inherit from anything and are outside of the scope of Rails. Yeah, I don't know. Sounds like you should just leave it to me. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I think that's probably what I'm going to do. But maybe I'll alias it. I'll alias yeah, but then it, the aliases just the stick around. It's like, it'll stick around by change. No, it'll be like before filter. I'll just change all the references to the documentation and be like, maybe I'll remove this later if yeah. I feel like it won't like cause Rails much pain later. Seven, you can take it out. Yeah, that could work. <laughs> all right. Um, is that it? Should we wrap up? We've got to let Gordon and Mark in here. Yeah, let's okay. wrap up. Um, show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash seven. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you again next time on the Bike Shed. All right. Talk cool. to you later. Talk to you Bye. Later.